You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Melissa Daniels Rauticus who teaches in the Department of English at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She teaches and publishes widely in African-American literary and cultural studies, with a particular emphasis on post-antebellum literature up to the Harlem Renaissance. Her 2020 book, Afro-Realisms and the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness and the African-American Novel, was published by Louisiana State University Press and awarded honorable mention in the William Sanders Scarborough Prize for work on African-American literature and culture in 2022, and is the occasion for our conversation today. This book revisits discourses of race and cultural production in the works of Francis Harper, Pauline Hopkins, Mark Twain, William Dean Howells, and Charles Chestnut. In this conversation, we explore interracial lines of influence and African-American literariness, with special attention to how such literariness marks this early period of writing with a peculiar mix of critique, vision of the future, and the distinctiveness of racial formation in key literary works, and then emerging writerly traditions. Hello, Melissa. Welcome. Hi, John. It's great to see you. Um, I'm so glad you made time for this conversation. Um, I absolutely loved your book. Um, and we've corresponded a bit about it. I think it's a really interesting, really innovative, really important book that challenges so much of what we do um, in African-American literary studies, but also Africana studies generally. So just having a chance to sit in and talk with you a little bit about the book today. I really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you for um, for saying that. That's uh, some of the best feedback I think um, I've ever received. And of course, what every yeah. author wants to hear. So thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I, th- I think the book, you know, I mean, one of the one of the sort of large zoomed out takes I have on the book is is I think it takes uh, real chances and and tries to do something new and is very successful at it. So I really appreciate books that um, that do just that. And I think it's, it's really interesting. It really just to get started. Um, I know it's been a bit since uh, since you let go of the book, right? Which is very <laughs> different than when we could purchase the book and read it. Um, but I'm curious, when you're thinking back on the book, uh, I wanted to ask you to narrate us into the project. You know, how did you come to these questions? Um, why ask these questions now? What sort of, you know, philosophical, literary, cultural sensibilities really motivated you into the project? And, and I ask that because I think it's a, an interesting part of book writing and, and, and you know, every author's journey but also because of what writing a book takes. I mean, it requires everything out of us, um, yeah. you know, from uh, emotional and spiritual and intellectual parts of our lives. And we put things aside for it. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, you know, what sort of political, intellectual, philosophical, cultural curiosities drew you to the project? Thank you. Um, I think that's a fabulous question because I think that, 
your journey into a book is a part of the 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 writing of the book. Um, and it's sure. it's great to have the opportunity to reflect on um, how this project came to be. It was a very, very long, um, difficult road. Um, and it's been a really long time since I've spoken about this book. Um, but uh, I, I, the genesis of the book really is my doctoral dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Northwestern. And, um, and when I was in coursework back in the, uh, the mid-2000s, there was no formal way to exclusively study African-American literature. Hmm. Um, you know, I was in an English department, a very traditional English department at that. And, um, and looking back at that time, um, I have to say there really was not the infrastructure um, to, um, to specialize in African-American literature. Um, you know, one had to be an Americanist mm, and yeah. successfully complete the oral qualifying exam in American literature. And so for me, this meant that I had to read about 100 to 150 novels, short stories, dramatic works, poems, spanning from the colonial period to the new millennium, Um, And then I had to, on my own, create in consultation with our Black faculty, um, Alex Wahalia, Jennifer Brody, Sharon Holland, my own reading list in African-American literature. Um, You know, back in those days, there was this, I kind of like to refer to it as this multiculturalist Heath anthology approach to, to teaching American literature. Uh Um, American literature was this uh, nebulous, united colors of Benettonesque canon. And um, (laughs) and, and, and one read for diversity and and writers of color were only studied or valued in terms of their ability to represent race. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that always really um, it really bothered me because. I don't think I knew it at the time, but but now I believe that um, this approach puts um, white American literature at the center of the literary field formation, and yeah. um, and it really it really relegates African American literature to the periphery. Um, and so, um, you know, this this model I see it as this invention of liberal colorblindness. That, um, you know, in theory, it sounds good, right? You know, race doesn't matter. And all of these diverse cultural voices, you know, make up um, America. But, um, but in practice, it's, it's really a toxic practice because it upholds this vision of America in which, um, you know, white neutrality is the presumed subject position. And writers of color solely exist to teach white folks about diversity, um, and, um, you know, writers of color are not serious, you know, figures in their own right. They're kind of like the hired help. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to, to change this. I wanted to, um, I wanted to kind of create a way to think about American literature that really put African-American writing at the center, mm-hmm. um, at something that didn't just, you know, relegate black writers to chroniclers of racial experience. Um, but, but that really illuminated how, um, how the black experience is really central to, um, to American writing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I like that. It's funny when you were talking, I, I was thinking of all these uh, complaints that uh, <laughs> Ralph Ellison has uh, in his nonfiction about African-American literature being reduced to the sociological. I mean, it's part of his critique of Richard Wright, but it is more broadly this idea of you have white literary figures, then you have black chroniclers of, of, of what it means to be black, right? That's the sociological. And Absolutely. Invisible Man, which I know is not a, a, a part of the, the book, but I mean, Invisible Man ends up being such an interesting um, enigma that way. That's so Absolutely. intensely literary and written in all these different communicative levels exactly against this kind of canon. Um, that not just canon, but as you put it, are, you know, thinking about centers and peripheries, even yeah. when you think you're flattening the sort of field of literary studies. So there's something really to be said about you having that realization in graduate study and Ralph Ellison writing, you know, you know, so many years, decades prior. So I, I really like how you put that, you know, um, it's, it's true um, that, um, you know, prioritizing um, the race in that way really does make black writers more like sociologists than, than artists. And, um, but, but I also think it's important to know that doing that reduces black literature to a certain set of cultural and political concerns, Um, you know, material conditions, racial oppression, resistance to the, to the white power structure. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there, there are all these other things that we should um, account for, like interiority, um, affects beyond grief and rage, you know? Um, And, and so all of this for me is just a part of trying to tell a fuller story about um, Black racialized experience, but also about Black literary and cultural production. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me ask you about the title of the book as a way of sort of getting into, you know, how you intervene in these these questions, which, you know, on the one hand are, you know, half century to a century old, but the fact that they remain fresh is, is, is part of the urgency of this kind of project. Yeah. But if you could walk through the title a little bit, um, it has two parts uh, that I wanted to ask about, right? Afro-realisms and the romances of race. And I'm interested in this term, Afro-realisms. You know, what's at stake in that for you? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it uh, work as a critical frame? And then this phrase, romances of race, right? And and why that as, it's not a subtitle, but a second half of the title that operates as, as, in my understanding, as a sort of embellishment of the Afro-realisms, right? Realism and romance, the interesting pairing. Um, And just generally, I love titles, and especially these kinds of titles that I think give us uh, a real, uh, I don't want to say a roadmap, but a a kind of um, guide to uh, the book's argument. So what about Afro-realisms? And what about this romances of race in the title? Yeah, great question. Um, Afro-realisms is my term for the merger of realistic and non-realistic conventions and narrative strategies that I think are really characteristic of African-American literature written during the Nader. Um, But to a larger extent, African-American literature and cultural production as a whole. Um, Going back to the antebellum period, Um, As in the case of slave narratives, the literary establishment has always 
demanded that Black writers tell the truth about Black racialized experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was also the case during um, the Nader, the Harlem Renaissance, the post-45 era, civil rights, the Black arts movement, the new Black aesthetic, you know, the post-soul, Black Lives Matter, and it remains so now. Um, so this expectation for racial realism, to use a term that um, Jean Andrew Jarrett uh, coined, um, it, it's at work in various forms of, of Black cultural production, like reality TV, you know, movies, music, sure. social media. You know, here too, Black reality is on display, um, and mostly for white consumption. Um, and, and yet I think black people themselves kind of place a lot of stock in the real, you know, um, we, in the vernacular, we talk about keeping it real or keeping it 100 or keeping it above. Um, and, you know, we call out other black people for, um, for stunting or, you know, for doing it for the gram, which for our listeners who don't know, it means to, you know, to lie or to present a false image on Instagram. Um, so realism, I think, is really um, uh, a core feature of uh, Black art and expressive culture. Mm-hmm. But I think realism alone is a very insufficient vehicle for um, depicting and discussing Black life, because I think so much about Black life really feels unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find that turning to the genres of romantic fiction um, in this ironic way, kind of helps us make sense of certain aspects of Black experience. Mm-hmm. So this is what I mean by, by the, the phrase, romances of race. Um, so for example, you know, um, the Gothic helps us get at some of these nightmarish dimensions of slavery and anti-Black violence. Um, while I think of, um, you know, the historical romance or the picaresque novel, um, you know, going back to Ellison's Invisible Man, right? That's a that's a picaresque novel. Um, it really kind of lends itself to representing um, the black urge to achieve achieve the American dream of upward mm-hmm. mobility. Um, and then, you know, I could I could go on and on and on about these romantic genres, um, but I'll just kind of quickly say that um, as a neologism, the term Afro-realisms is really my attempt to kind of illustrate how the literary can um, engender a type of critical theory of genre in mm. aesthetics and um, in racial representation. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I also want to, and this is always funny, I do think like before you even open a book, really interesting things happen because given what you were just saying is, is so interesting then with this title, right? Evoking romance of race, Afro-realism, the cover, right? Which for people who are listening, they'll be able to see whether it pops up on the streaming service or on the the Atlantic theory uh, website is this really stunning piece, the founding of Chicago uh, from 1933 by Aaron Douglas. Um, whose work is always amazing, you know, and um, there's a nice little resonance with uh, Gilroy's The Black Atlantic in terms of, you know, <laughs> put Douglas on the cover of a book. Um, I'm so glad you caught that. I was, you know, I was hoping people would would catch that. I, well, sure. I mean, I, I noticed that right away. I was like, okay, I got to get Aaron Douglas on one of my books. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, his stuff is, is, is so beautiful and, and, you know, very intense. Um, and I'm curious, you know, for you, I mean, covers, sometimes they just put something on the cover. You know, I haven't had a particularly um, exciting series of covers with my books, but, um, you know, when you design a cover or make this kind of choice for somebody like Aaron Douglas, something from 1933, the founding of Chicago, which is so important in terms of, you know, DeSable, in terms of, of the Great Migration, uh, yeah. South Side of Chicago and its legacy and history and so forth. So I'm curious for you, you know, why this as a cover for the book and how, if if at all, it works to frame some of the meanings in the, t- the text itself. Thank you. Um, I, I absolutely love this gouache painting. Um, I stumbled it. I stumbled across it while I was doing research on Aaron Douglas um, and, you know, who for our listeners who might not be familiar with him, he was a major figure um, of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, he mostly painted murals and illustrations for black publications like The Crisis um, and Opportunity. Um, but uh, what I was surprised to find out is that he he actually studied with a German um, portraitist named Wendell Rice, who um, encouraged him to use African imagery. Um, and so Douglas used this Afrocentric imagery to depict the, um, the ancestral connection between Africans and, and African-Americans and um, to chart the transition from slavery to the Reconstruction era to modernity. So I selected the founding of Chicago for the cover because I think that it depicts the very temporality and um, thematic concerns that I engage in the book. Um, you know, the painting is about um, Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable, um, who's regarded as the first Black resident of, of what is now Chicago. Um, but beyond that, it's also about ancestry and racial inheritance and, um, and Black political futurity. Um, but I also, on like a methodological level, I think that the painting perfectly dramatizes what it means to work in African-American literary studies. Hmm. Um, it demands that we periodically look backwards to see where we started, determine how far we've come, assess our current moment, and um, anticipate what lies ahead. Um, I think with guarded optimism, um, hoping for the best, but but also realistically preparing for the worst, knowing that, um, you know, as Fred Moten puts it in this essay I love called Black Up, we have what we need. We can make it from here. Um, and it ain't nothing wrong with us. There's cause for optimism. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's kind of the the story behind this, this picture. Um, mm-hmm. I just felt like it was really this kind of um, weird, uncanny kind of event. Um, I like to believe that maybe it was the universe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was thinking of it of the cover when you the, when you were making your very first remarks about the origins of the project and the sense of like, <clears throat> you know, what it means to to even say the phrase "the founding of Chicago." You know, obviously that's it's it's a historical reflection and and Desable, as as you mentioned and the Harlem Renaissance as you know imagining itself to be this sort of founding uh, as yeah. well, but the way you talked about how you came to the project, which is this sense of founding 
in the study of African-American literature is in some ways a constant project. We're always having to pull out that, that pickaxe, right. Or sledgehammer to, to destroy some things and to move some ground to make something new. I like that. I like that a lot. And the press let you, uh, this was a selection you made. That's, that's so great. I mean, you know, when you pick somebody like Aaron <laughs> Douglas, you know, getting the press to uh, pay for the rights, uh, that's no small accomplishment. You should put that on your CV. <laughs> I got a press to uh, bite on an Aaron Douglas cover. So, uh, My production editor said it was an inspired choice. And so <laughs> excellent. Um, it worked out. It worked they were, out. <laughs> they were absolutely right. Well, open, <laughs> opening the book, um, I want to ask you, you know, about the just the collection of figures uh, mm-hmm. in the book. Um, someone said it, you know, you're going to write on this theme of Afro-realism, romances of race. Um, and we were going to put together a, a, a cluster of, of writers. I don't know that Francis Harper, Charles Chestnut, Pauline Hopkins, William Dean Howells, and Mark Twain would immediately come to mind, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> So it's not a, you know, you didn't put together a combination that's sort of standard, right? You didn't pick sort of, you know, Wright Baldwin Ellison or, you know, some right, of these right. sort of <laughs> sort of sort of almost cliche at this point uh, groupings. So that means there's something about that, the particular constellation of figures, collection yeah. or constellation. I'm interested if it's uh, how you think about them. But, you know, why these figures? You know, what drew you to them and... Um, what do you think bringing them into contact with each other, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's in the actual writing or in your own thinking about writing, what do you think it allows us to see as readers and you to see as a writer that we wouldn't otherwise see? Ah, great question. Um, so many ways I want to um, respond to this. I'll, I'll start kind of by talking about um, how we periodize African-American literature Um, You know, I have always felt that um, post-Bellum, pre-Harlem writers got a pretty raw deal because because scholars have always been very dismissive of the literature produced during this time. Um, You know, I think about Houston Baker's comments about Black women writers at this time, you know, but even, even before Baker, you know, the literature was dismissed as being aesthetically, um, you know, weak. Um, imitative mm-hmm. of white norms, you know, being politically feeble. Um, and so there's a way in which I, I feel like this literature is just now really starting to get the scholarly attention mm-hmm. that it deserves. Um, when I started reading um, scholarship by Black women, I might add, um, Deborah McDowell, Frances Smith Foster, Gabrielle Foreman, these Black women who were at the center of um, you know, Henry Louis Gates' Schomburg, Schomburg series, you know, in mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. 19th century African-American um, literature, I realized that there was, um, that, that this literature was just more dynamic than, you know, what people really um, realized or accounted for. Um, I saw a lot of aesthetic innovations when I looked at the literature. Mm-hmm. I also thought that there was... Um, there was a very sophisticated um, uh, approach towards politics um, Hmm. happening in these works too. Um, But I also started to see that there was this kind of interracial intertextual 
conversation that was also happening about racial representation in fiction. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to um, kind of move beyond the color line, if you will, and to um, to look at how these figures and their texts are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, once I, um, once I identified these similarities, I, I just became convinced that Harper and Chestnut and Hopkins read Twain and, and House. Um, you know, a work like Iola Leroy, the plot seems to be such a deliberate reversal of, um, of Howells's um, An Imperative Duty. Um, so I, I think that looking at these figures and these texts together allows us to kind of um, recuperate this literature Mm-hmm. And and reappraise it. Um, when we look at the literature together, we see that there's this very forward-thinking account about theories of racial identification and um, and progressive attitudes towards mm-hmm. interracial marriage, um, and, and inherently a certain kind of optimism about um, black political power in the future. Um, I, I, I think that these works really encourage us to kind of move beyond notions of, um, you know, the author, <laughs> yeah. but to kind of, um, you know, the discrete author, right? Yeah. Um, but to kind of think about an author function, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and to think about how the business of talking about race and fiction produces its own author function, right? So, um Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what but, I saw happening here. And it seems just to follow up. I mean, it seems to to make a really interesting then way of revisiting, especially that question of of is this particular period right of of, of postbellum, you know, sort of pre Harlem Renaissance uh, literature is it imitative, right? Once you yeah. start to talk about, you know speculate or talk about or theorize this, you know, they read Twain, they read Howells, right? All of a sudden imitative is a, is neutralized in that moment, right? Because you're no longer talking about, you know, somebody taking a style off a shelf. Now you're talking about somebody reading and processing. That's a whole different kind of dynamic. Yeah. And revising and remixing, which I think um, as aesthetic practices are so rooted and um and black you know artistic and and expressive culture and this is you know what i said at the beginning and it wasn't just um you know having praise for the book when i said i think that there's a lot in this book about the future of of black studies as a field right not just african-american literary studies but black studies as a field and i think this is one of those major contributions right which is to I don't know how else to put it, but it's like rethinking influence, right? It's not alienation, right? Because typically that African-American, you know, literary figure influenced by a white writer must mean alienation and imitation, right? right? Right. And instead (laughs) saying like, you know, I mean, there is this something really, you know, kind of makes me aghast to think, you know, somebody like Charles Chestnut is just imitating anybody, but insofar as one, as insofar as one needs to to fight against that, I think there's you open up this different horizon 
of uh, influence, right? For lack of a better word, I, that word is really overdetermined because of Bloom's work and so forth. Absolutely. But, but I think uh, recapturing that word and seeing it deployed in these ways that you do in the book is is a really broad, important contribution, right? To when we, you know, because I think if you talk about, say, Ellison and his, you know, reading of Dostoevsky, somebody like Ellison, that's part of what you're talking about, the sort of mythologies of periods and how we periodize yeah. African-American literature. I think people think, oh, well, he's clearly, you know, doing a sort of jazz improvisation off Dostoevsky or some some sort of, you know, praise of Ellison that way. But to go back to this pre-Harlem Renaissance period and start to think more radically about um, influence, I think is, is really transformative. Thank you. Thank you. Might be worth at some point, for, you know, stepping back and writing a sort of, you know, postbellum theory of influence right out of mm. this sort of thing. I think it's a really interesting. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and, you know, full disclosure, it's also one of my obsessions, uh, especially in the Francophone Black Atlantic world. So so here yeah. I am uh, pushing this agenda <laughs> on everybody. But I think it's such a key question because part of our habits of being critical of, uh, about, you know, being anti-colonial or anti-racist in our readings and our appreciation of figures has been to try to cleave, you know, black writers from any kind of influence yeah. that doesn't pass totally. a certain kind of, of standard. Whereas these, you know, I think if one runs toward the genius of Harper or Chestnut or Hopkins, I mean, now we're talking about a whole different kind of, um, way of reckoning and so your book is i think I, what i like is that your book is not a theory of how to do that but is actually a practice of that thank yeah. you i was i was trying to model you know what um this kind of criticism might look like uh you know i'm not sure if i pulled it off but um but i i certainly wanted to offer it as um as an example of how it might be done yeah. Let me ask you about, you know, there's the figures, sort of what drew you to them and, you know, what putting them in relationship does. Um, I want to ask a, like a theorist question, really, which is, you know, how do you understand the relationship between these figures? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, but just to put it sort of straightforwardly that way, you know, how do you understand that? Because, you know, when I initially started reading the book, I was anticipating having looked at the, you know, read the intro, having looked at the table of contents sort of expected something along the lines of a comparativist study, but it's yeah, really yeah. not that kind of study. Right. No. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you this question of, you know, how you read, how you, what sort of theoretical approach frames that reading such that you put these writers into a relationship. I mean, you've spoken about, you know, about Afro-realism and, and the idea of the romantic, but I'm just wanted to really just put it directly that way right? What is the, how do you do intertextual study and mm. how do you think it allows us to see something about these relationships? Yeah. Yeah. I'm such a methods person. Um, uh, and I, I think in terms of like systems <laughs> and paradigms and, um, and, and I think that how we read is just as crucial as what we, what we read and why, mm -hmm. um, so I would characterize the relationships that I set up between these figures as cumulative. 
Um, and, and that's to say that um, I, I think each chapter builds on the previous chapter's reading of a figure in their work. Um, each chapter attempts to advance um, its own unique um, iteration of, of Afro-realism um, as, as that author practiced it in that particular text. Um, but I also kind of wanted to situate the text within the, the author's oeuvre and in relationship to other contemporaneous um, um, literature. So um, for me, each chapter reads a singular work deeply, but I think that the four chapters taken together provide um, a, a wider reading of uh, the key practici practitioners and, um, and sets of texts that I think reflect Afro-realism. Um, I, I think as I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, um, my point is that this is such a dynamic and capacious modality. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think that reading this way um, is an attempt to kind of move past the individual author, but to um, to look at how, um, you know, reading for racial representation allows us to kind of push past um, an identitarian approach mm -hmm. to canon formation and to kind of think about aesthetics. Yeah. So let me ask about that. I mean, you, 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 hinted at, uh, or not hinted at, but sort of led to this, you know, what I think is, is I, I would guess, especially uh, uh, among our shared fields and, and cognate fields, uh, one of the most provocative claims of the book, right? Which is that certain non-Black writers be included in the African-American literary canon, right? Yeah. And this move, <laughs> this move to, towards the aesthetic is a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's it's funny to put it that way because then I think one of the other ways of of phrasing that is is to examine the literariness of the literature, which should not be provocative, <laughs> right. but it is provocative, right? It is, um, it is, and that says something about how we, in, you know, do the work of interpretation, right? Yes, absolutely. So I'm curious uh, to hear you unpack this this claim, right, the, of non-black yeah. writers being included in the African American literary canon. You know, um, you know, how do you arrive at this claim? You know, what motivated it? You know, um, and also, you know, how you think it helps us understand the relationships between race, writing, and literariness. And really, I think you know the subtitle of the book, which I've spoken out loud in this, uh, is "Rethinking Blackness in the African American Novel," and that's all of a sudden that subtitle looks totally different, right? In right, light of this right. claim, so unpack the claim a little bit, and and you know how do we, how should we then, for going forward, be thinking about race, writing, and literariness? Yeah, uh, this this is a frightening idea. I was so afraid, so afraid that I would be canceled <laughs> and, and have my have my black card revoked um, forever. Um, it's a scary claim. You know, I'm still afraid of this claim. Um, and I'm, I'm fully aware that it invites a certain kind of suspicion and defensiveness and maybe even anger and maybe rightfully so. But um, intuitively, I feel like 
we need to acknowledge this, you know, mm. um, I'll, I'll start by saying that I think that what I was trying to do is de-emphasize um, a racial essentialism that, um, that gets lodged in the black body, but also just in terms of how we, um, how we form canons and how we interpret Um, And so um, this kind of gets to my subtitle, um, Rethinking Blackness in the African-American Novel. Um, I'm trying to think about Blackness as an artistic modality. And when we really kind of take this up, we'll see that I'm not the first person to say this. You know, Um, Toni Morrison has made similar comments. Skip Gates, um, Aaliyah Abdur-Rahman in her um, fabulous book, Against the Closet. Mm -hmm. She makes a very compelling case for reading Faulkner um, as a part of the (laughs) African-American literary canon. You know, Toni Morrison and, and Gates said that, you know, Blackness is a use of of language. You know, um, it's it's not about my individual black flesh, but it's about language um, and narrative strategies. Um, if I might offer an analog, I think that I, I feel like it's easier to understand what I'm saying um, when we think about musical genres. And I think yeah. because literary studies is so driven by identity politics and identitarian stuff that it's mm-hmm. harder for us. To, to see it, but you know, um, hip hop isn't any less black simply because it's evolved to a point where it's a global phenomenon practiced by non-black people all over the world. Um, some of my favorite rappers are white. Um, I love Jack Harlow, he's a new artist um, in hip hop. Um, Eminem, Bubba Sparks. Um, I think most black people would claim their music is black and um, as deserving of a place um, in the genre. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Black people are sophisticated enough to understand that there's an ethical way for a white person to participate in a genre created by Black people without always appropriating the culture Mm -hmm. or, you know, fetishizing it. Um, I think this is true of R&B and jazz too. You know, black people love them, some Tina Marie and some Justin Timberlake, (laughs) you know, and if if somebody told us we couldn't invite them to um, to the Summer Jam Fest, I think we'd be mad as hell. Um, I I got to see Tina Marie before she died and um, and it was an amazing experience. (laughs) Um, She performed in in front of a predominantly black audience here in Southern California and black people loved it. She was not on the outside looking in. She was very much in the group. And while she was still very white, the performance was very black. Um, and so um, my point is that I think art traffics in this broader sphere known as the cultural realm. Um, and yes, the cultural realm is also kind of enmeshed in um, a system of um, racialized capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to be naive here. I want to account for some of the problems with, you know, my, sure. um, my approach. Sure. Um, obviously, there are major issues surrounding non-Black participation in and consumption of Black art. Um, yes, I believe that Black artists should be celebrated for their work. And, and I do believe that they should still be at the helm of Black art forms. Um, but just like American culture, I think black culture and cultural production gets exported all over the world. 
Mm-hmm. That's influence. That's power. Um, should we profit f- from that? I, I, I absolutely think we should. I think that um, that's one of the the lessons that the late great rapper Nipsey Hussle imparted, you know, that um, he always talked about owning his masters. Black artists need to be able to um, exercise um, greater ownership over um, their, their art. Um, and, and I think that we should acknowledge that sometimes people like black art, but they hate black people, (laughs) you know, like, like for real. Um, but I also think that, you know, part of the power of art or the literary, right. Is that it can change how we see ourselves, how we see other people. Um, art can communicate powerful ideas about personhood and liberation, um, and you know, that's not nothing. That's, um, that's, that's everything. I, I think back to, um, I think back to like the eighties and the early nineties. I'm, I'm really into the nineties cause I was a teenager in the nineties. Um, but I, I think about how, you know, the FBI, um, targeted NWA back, back in the eighties. Um, I think back to two life crew in the obscenity trials, you know, um, it was it was none other than Skip Gates who said that Two Life Crew had literary value. Um, and so part of rethinking blackness for me is um, is is not giving in to that that longer tradition of policing mm-hmm. um, the, the boundaries of black art and expression. It's interesting to, you know, to hear that analogy and then think back to to your narration into the book. I mean, there's an interesting both comparison and contrast, and you've done the comparison there. Uh, but the contrast of, say, you know, American popular music, which, you know, has been so dominated by African-Americans from the beginning that it's, you know, I mean, American music is African-American music, and then there are variations of it. But as you were saying, the study of African-American literature is an inversion of that, right? Of yeah. how can, how can you know, there be this, um, this study of this intellectual and literary tradition, right? And mm-hmm. it's such a white dominated field, not only a field in terms of the people who do the study, but the people who have published books. Um, yeah. And sort of thinking those two things together is really interesting. And especially because on the one hand, it's in terms of sheer numbers, that's part of the history of slavery and segregation, right? Is, is the underproduction of, of black writers, you know, uh, by design, but also African, uh, but also literature in the United States is also so dominated at its highest levels, right? <laughs> by African-American writers. I mean, Morrison yeah. and, and Ellison and Wright and Baldwin and Hurston and so forth. Um, Absolutely. So there's an interesting, you know, when you make that that analogy, there are interesting comparisons and contrasts that I think are also really worth thinking about and why some things feel more precarious than others. Yeah, yeah. I'll also say that, you know, I, um, I can't truly take credit for um, the ideas in the book. You know, I, um, I have been influenced by, you know, people like Jean Jarrett, mm-hmm. um, Gab- you know, Gabriel Foreman um, back in 2008 during, you know, Obama's um, campaign. You know, we were in her office and she said, Puddinghead Wilson is a black novel. 
And yeah. I had never, I mean, it just blew me away. I was like, oh my God, she's right. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is a black novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know um, just, you know, this, as another aside, uh, my spouse uh, regularly teaches a class on Morrison and Faulkner and the students go from mm. thinking, you know, being aghast at the pairing yeah. to, under, to understanding the pairing very intimately, you know, and uh yeah, I mean, you know, and that's where Twain is such an interesting uh, figure to pick up that way because I think he's mo- one of the more complex writers about this. Yeah. But also someone who indulges language like Faulkner. And, you know, yeah. when you're talking about Morrison, thinking about blackness and language um, yeah. rather than blackness and a sort of static identity or a sort of face on a cover. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you about this phrase and... Um, that comes out uh, a couple times in the book and it just really stuck out for me. And I, I just, part of it's because I think one of the the terms that's really missing or has really faded from prominence. I, I went to graduate school in the early nineties and hermeneutics was such a, a key part of especially philosophy, but also uh, literary theory. I think it's really faded. And I liked yeah. seeing the word hermeneutics uh, pop back up in this book. I, I think it's, it's, it's back uh, it's a, a waiting to, for a comeback in terms of, of the power of hermeneutics to think about mm-hmm. a relationship between us as readers and what the text gives and what the writer gives to the text. Um, but you qualify it in the book with this, making, making it this phrase, proleptic hermeneutics. So I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that notion. I, you know, I'm fully aware that I may be overinflating it because I found it so <laughs> interesting, but it really does a lot of work across the book. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that notion, uh, where it came from and what work you think it does in your readings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that word too. Um, and you know, I was in grad school, um, in the early two thousands and at a time where it was all about Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari and, you know, Walter Benjamin. And, um, and, you know, I'm interested in those kinds of critical theories, but I just always felt that we always undervalued um, the, the theory and the criticism to come out of African-American literary studies. And so I think I've always been trying to, um, to create a critical um, method and lexicon for studying African-American literature. Um, And so I came up with this term because um, it's a way for me to kind of talk about this kind of forward-looking impulse that I see in the literature. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it's also a way for me to to underscore... um, all of the really innovative narrative strategies that I see at work um, in in these texts, some of the things that um, that these writers were doing in terms of um, representing blackness um, and and kind of rethinking identity, you know, when you look at it, it's like they had already anticipated what theorists in the late twentieth century you know, would would be, would be calling for. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm not the first person to make this observation. I think other people, um, you know, like Trey Ellis and, you know, Bertram Ash, people who've worked on um, the new black aesthetic and in the post soul, I think that they, 
um, to have um, revisited um, at least the Harlem Renaissance, if not the period of the Nader, um, identifying that concepts like racial fluidity were yeah. um, were already um, in action. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's it's a way for me to support my argument. But the one of the the things that I think it's also doing, kind of beyond that, is that um, it's it's calling for a, a reassessment in terms of how we periodize. Um, black literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that came out in the reader's report is that my reader said, you know, you're doing something I haven't seen anyone do before. Um, and so my reader said, you know, that, that's always a up- good or a scary thing. I mean, it can go two <laughs> <I know>. directions. <laughs> that's true. And, and, and I think I felt both, I felt, you know, afraid. Yeah. I felt excited. Um, you know, so much of my boldness comes from the fact that I'm not supposed to be here. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I feel I was never supposed to get this far. So um, on the one hand, it does encourage me to do things that maybe other people in my situation would not do. I take certain challenges head on and I take creative and intellectual risks. And mm-hmm. um, and, um, and and this is an example of that. Um, uh, the reviewer really wanted me to come up with um, a term to describe the sense that I had that Black writers were, um, were visionaries, mm-hmm. that, that they were making prophecies about the future of Blackness in America and, mm-hmm. um, and the future status and role of the Black writer um, in creating an American culture. Um, and I just think that is absolutely fascinating because we come to discussions about 19th century literature with these preconceived notions um, <coughs> that it's not progressive, right? Or that, yeah. or that it's imitative of, you know, white literature. Um, and so I wanted to really highlight that we need to as we continue to kind of tell more complex stories about African-American writing in the U.S., um, we need to come up with new methodologies, new vocabularies, new approaches to literary history and periodization. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we really do. Um, And we need to go back. We need to stop always thinking that it's 20th century or 21st century writings that are always at the vanguard of anything. Sure. Um, we need to go back and we need to reread that literature and we need to reassess it and mm-hmm. reappraise it. Um, because, you know, how we how we interpret, I tell my students this all this time, you know, we've got to contextualize and historicize. But I also think we need to kind of be vigilant about how we periodize and how we read. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think that interpretation and interpretive lenses, you know, they're really shifting registers, how we read changes, you know? So, and I really love this, uh, you know, this imperative or sort of call for a new critical theory vocabulary, because I think, I I do think that's a, I don't want to call it a crisis because it's not at that point, but there's, I think a real question of, 
of what to do with how much African-American literary studies has been about literary history Um, and not as much about the theoretical work that's being done in those literary pieces. I mean, I think even, even writers as, as, um, as uh, theoretical as Ralph Ellison, who I've mentioned a couple of times, um, you know, an invisible man could generate all kinds of interesting, and he tries to in terms of lower frequencies, right? To oh, invoke yeah. his own kind of theoretical frameworks and 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 methods, uh, but paying attention to that, especially as you say, in writers who are, you know, often thought of as like not, you know, they haven't arrived at the moment of full articulation or underdevelopment, yeah. imitation, yeah. and so forth. Uh, I really love that. I mean, I, I you know. I, I think something that's very much needed is a is a sort of new dictionary of of, of literary Absolutely. terms for the Black Atlantic, and Absolutely. it's interesting because I do you know myself my own specialty is is uh, Francophone and Anglophone Caribbean, and it's kind of the opposite there where there's so much attention to to new concepts, to new ideas, to new methods, and. I think in some ways, uh, a, a deficient attention to the literariness of pieces. Um, but I have to say also this notion of, of proleptic hermeneutics has made me go back to my own thinking about George Lamming's early uh, nonfiction, where he mm. was talking about what it meant to write at the turn of the uh, uh, middle of the 20th century as a Caribbean writer, you were writing for an audience to come. Mm, I and, love that. And what does it mean to write for an audience to come, but also write in a way to form that audience in a certain kind of way and the political and cultural burdens of it. Um, and this notion of proleptic that. hermeneutics, I like it because it doesn't, to me, you mentioned prophecy, both prophecy and futurism, I think are, I mean, futurism obviously is much more used, but even the notion of the prophetic um, I like proleptic as as a, and proleptic hermeneutics as a way that sort of both keeps the power of something like futurism or yeah. um, without the sort of detachment of time, right? Because yeah. you really are able to embed. I think that's part of writing about the figures in the time period that, that you write about, right? Yeah. That you embed this notion of proleptic hermeneutics in them. They're not postponing. They're really speaking to their present while also speaking. Absolutely. To I, um, I have to say, I love, I love what you just said, because I agree with you that, um, you know, we look at this period, you know, these writers were grappling with some of the same things we're grappling with right now. You know, their present was also police brutality and hate crimes and, you know, um, they had um, segregation, you know, that was constitutionally sanctioned, but we're still very segregated today. You know, there's mm-hmm. residential segregation and um, the segregation that happens because um, because there aren't too many avenues of upward mobility, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they were dealing with voter suppression um, you yeah. know, incarceration. I mean, you know, um, and yet there was still a sense of, I think, agency ascribed to the, liter- the literary text. And mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. still um, an optimism about um, about black politics and, mm-hmm. and what 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 art could achieve. And um, and what um, what black politics could achieve, and um, 
and and I feel like a lot of and I say this as someone I don't really identify as a black studies practitioner. I see again. I, I see myself as like a guest in in black studies, right. but um, but but a lot of the criticism is just incredibly pessimistic. Sure. It really is. It really is. Yeah, I, and it's, it's, <laughs> I think there's an interesting um, uh, there's an interesting you know, thing that comes to mind listening to you talk, both in what you just said and the things you were just saying the last couple of responses around the sort of diminishment of art as a center of politics or as of one of the central possibilities of politics and political pessimism. I think that's a, an interesting historical trajectory. And that actually gets me to what I found so interesting about your epilogue. Um, I have yet to write a proper epilogue. I'm always jealous when I read these, what I consider like a proper epilogue, which is where you sort of let go of, you know, your, your commitment to certain, you know, novels or short stories and working through them and speculate, right. And, and yeah. make associative connections. And I love this epilogue. I thought it was fantastic and is full of so many provocative suggestions. And one of the things that, that sort of connects to this sort of culture and politics or art and politics question is the way you suggest that this, this, uh, conversation that you have in the book, this position that you take in the book ought to, have uh, ought to reorient us or make us think differently about popular cultural production in the United States today. You say, you know, television series, cinema, right? Music. So I want to ask you a bit about that. I mean, I think it's a really exciting direction to point us into, but it's not empty. It's not a sort of like, well, let's look at reality television, you know, because it's important, (laughs) but instead is saying like, look, here's, you know, you've done this difficult work of, of uh, close textual and theoretical study of texts that have been described as imitative, imitative or retrograde, right? Yeah. And elevated them to the level of sort of founding discourses. And now you seem to be sort of suggesting we need that same kind of approach in order, I wonder if in order to rehabilitate this sort of place of art in relation to politics, as, yeah. as you said, in relation to pessimism, I hadn't thought about it in relation to pessimism until you said it. That's really interesting to me because really the way literature was seen as like like a field of possibility for so yeah. many decades, I don't think we talk about art that way. No. But no. you seem to be suggesting something along those lines in the epilogue. So maybe just a bit about like what, how you think we ought to change our approach or ought to approach Black cultural production at the popular level. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that we have to understand that genres and their um, their intellectual and cultural power, um, it changes. G- genres evolve. Um, genres wane, you know. Um, and um, I think we as scholars and teachers, we have to, um, we have to really honor the fact that you know, for many of our students, um, media is the modality that um, I think has the greatest kind of cultural power with them. Um, I think that um, media is also the modality in which a lot of our students encounter the literary (laughs) or literary text. Like I think about how when Rebecca Hall's Netflix adaptation of Passing came out last year, so many of my students had never heard 
of um, Nella Larson. They had never even heard of, of passing. Um, hmm. And so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that to me tells, it should tell us something um, yeah. that, 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 you know, the shrinking field of literary studies is going to have to account for that if it's to remain relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I think we have to understand that as much as some of us working in Black studies might not want it to, Black cultural production does not exist in a Black vacuum. You know, um, it exists in a global marketplace where it wields tremendous influence um, and power and generates massive profits. So, you know, we can't keep thinking about our cultural production in terms of, um, you know, this 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 product that I own, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's 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 an entertainment product, too. You know, it's not just a vanity project. It's a it's a global entertainment product. You know, Mark Anthony Neal has has talked about this too. Um, I also think that um, uh, Rollin Murray has has talked about this a little bit too with Percival Everett's stuff. Um, but you know, more and more Black cultural production is going to exist at the center of um, American cultural production, and I think that it changes how. We think about um, the audience for Black art um, and and the consumers of Black art yeah. and and where we locate the art form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting direction to take and, and it complicates the Manichaeism of so much yeah. of this kind of discourse, which is, you know, blocking one set of cultural productions in a particular place right and instead spreading it out in this global space which is really uh really complicated and hard um i will say again i i do think there are some really interesting caribbean figures who have have tried to sort through this because the caribbean mm. had always been that global crossroads yeah. but then yeah. was the sort of first place where you know through negritude there was a sort of what we might call like pan-Africanism or, or African, yes. uh, black nationalism uh, in an Atlantic context sort of emerging, but sort of, not sort of, but post-France Fanon, there's been so much interesting stuff on how to think about multiple cultural uh, influences, but that's yeah. really a lot of space uh, uh, and, and I think requires a careful eye. I mean, I like that about your book in that it says, it's not a series of prognostications. It's literary studies and saying like, what does it mean to read chestnut this way, for example? And so now it's anchored in a particular reading and how that produces something rather than, rather than an object, Charles chestnut, right. Embellishes this sense of genius and creativity and vision. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know you said that, you know, black studies, you're like a guest in black studies, but um, you know, you can be like a guest at a, at a wedding and give a toast, right? <laughs> I want to ask you maybe a, sort of some uh, version of that. It's a bad analogy, but um, <laughs> just ask sort of if you zoom out from the book, thinking about how the claims in the text that that you make and that we've discussed today, um, you know, you talk about how it shifts the field of literary studies, and I'm wondering also then about black studies, right? Yeah. Especially because what one of the things you do is talk about the gen you complicate the genesis of race discourse. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so this this claim of dis, of of race as a discursive production, right? How you write about race is, becomes a reality of race. Um, yeah. And that this is a more complicated space than 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 previously theorized, or you're one of the people sort of trying to theorize this in a more complex way. And so in thinking about how race prefigures identity through language, through literariness, through discourse, you know, how do you think broadly then outside the bounds of these texts that we ought to be thinking, again, from a Black Studies perspective, about the core concepts of race, the core concepts of identity and world, because that sense of the preciousness of a Black world for Black people by Black people is rightly a, a precious uh, thing to hold on to, but it's also yeah. something that you're complicating on the edges and out from. Yeah, yeah. I um, I I feel like Gene Andrew Jarrett to me has um, has had one of the best responses to this problem, and and that is to say that you know, black studies as a field formation emerges in a certain kind of cultural and political moment, you know, in the U S and, um, and it really is a project that was fueled by, um, you know, the black power movement, Mm -hmm. um, and also the, um, the, the early phases of the institutionalization of black studies as a discipline in American colleges and universities. Uh Um, and so um, it's important to honor that history. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a real genealogy periodization person, as you can tell. Um, yeah. So I, I, I do think it's important to honor that history. But it's also we have to kind of honor how far we've come. Mm-hmm. We have to honor where we're at today in the discipline. Um, and our, um, our interpretive practices have to evolve. Our interpretive practices need to evolve with um, with the field and the realities of race in America. You know, Chestnut knew that the future American was going to be, you know, uh, a racial mutt. He published that in, you know, the Boston transcript, you know, I'm the future American. (laughs) Um, And um, and and we're we're there. You know, I think Francis Harper with, you know, a lot's been said about all of the light skinned mulatto characters in Iola Leroy. But I think Harper was giving us a definition of blackness that was big enough to include, you know, mixed race people. Um, you know, oftentimes mixed raceness is seen as this thing that exists kind of outside of blackness mm-hmm. or in um, or somehow like in this antagonistic um, relation to blackness, but no, I, I, I think that they understood that, you know, mixed people are black people, <laughs> not because of a one drop rule, because race is also about affiliation and self-identification, yeah. you know, like, like, I don't think I'm reifying the one drop rule when I, you know, when I talk about Harper's, you know, fictional mulattoes, I, I I think they saw the power and um, the, the the potential political power mm-hmm. in the intellectual power of choosing to be black, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and choosing to belong to a black community. Um, and so to me, I think that is extremely innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing it at a time before we had the language of 
you know, racial self-identification um, or um, racial belonging, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. we talk about race in terms of how we self-identify and how we relate to others now. You know, we didn't back then. Back then, race was something that was refereed, um, you know, by science, by law, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, and I also think by American fiction too. I think I think that you know when we talk about um, the discourses that made race real during the 19th century, right up there with science and um, and law should be f- fiction and cultural production. Mm-hmm. You know, um, plantation fiction, um, minstrel shows. That stuff made race real too. You know, so. Black studies, I think, really has to move beyond social death. And and it's really got to move beyond injection. And it's got to move beyond cultural property and ownership. And and there's got to be enough elasticity to talk about the diversity of Blackness. And, you know... um, I, I, I love that people like Alex Wahalia are writing about Black geeks. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I love Trey Ellis's first novel, Platitudes, where he's talking about, you know, affluent Black people, you know, who go to private schools. Um, I, I, I'm in love with Andrea Lee. That's the figure um, who I'm taking up in my next book. She writes about um, affluent, you know, Black people, Black women who travel. So, you know, I think that this is an exciting time to work in Black studies. I think there are a lot of scholars who are already kind of moving past some of those old paradigms and discourses. Um, And so I I see my book is is kind of calling for um, a new way to work in Black studies. Um, You know, if I have to hear about social death again... (laughs) (laughs) Thank God people are like Jared Sexton and um, one of my graduate students who just, uh, you know, um, submitted her thesis. She's talking about um, black fatherhood as a form of social life in social death. Hmm. And I told her, I think that's brilliant. Like, I I love that you are um, reframing this. Um, So, and I, I, again, I say all of this with, generosity and with love um as someone who does you know i i am aware that i was trained in an english department a very white english department and um and i understand that there might be issues with me making judgments about black studies as a discipline so like i said it's my field and uh, we'll pretend like this is a wedding and you get to give a toast and there's your toast. <laughs> right. No, I, I think, you know, it's interesting, like listening to you talk about that. I mean, I, what I often say to my, my colleagues in the field is that, you know, I mean, I did my PhD in philosophy in the, the early nineties. And, you know, one thing I, I've noticed about, about black studies is that it's, I think evolved as an area study to the point where it can be dominated by a movement 
which, you know, in philosophy is like the bane of philosophy's existence. It's like always what's the movement. And as soon as that movement passes, everybody's, everybody's intellectual life is out of date. Um, But, (laughs) but I think your book is really actually quite powerful that way in terms of, of pushing us as readers into this more complex space, which I, I mean, again, it's what I like about theoretical approaches to to periodization, which is not proposing something new, but retrieving something that has actually been absolutely central. Um, And I think, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is about, you know, where do you want this book to take readers, right? Yeah. Take readers in the sense of like, how how do you want readers to walk away from the book differently, right? In the sense of, you know, when we read something really powerful and, and we kind of walk different, right? We feel different. Yeah. Um, I might, it's not even a joke. It's like, I remember the first time I read Donicott's The Farming of Bones, and I felt like for like a month, I couldn't believe anybody else lived in the world who wasn't thinking about this book. You know, I mean, my wow. whole like feelings were, and my, my walk was different. Yeah, and so, I mean, you've yeah. spoken a lot to this, but I wonder, like, just in that sense of, like, walking with different sensibilities, right, feeling differently, approaching differently, how would you sort of want readers, we can't control readers, but we can hope that they walk away from, from a book uh, differently. How do you imagine the readers walking away from this? Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's such a great question. Um, I'd like readers to... Um, to appreciate the really um, intricate network of um, writers, black and white, um, readers, texts, um, literary debates, um, you know, literary political objectives. Um, I'd like for them to kind of understand black writing in the U.S. as um, as kind of um, including all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I want readers to have a, a new sense of the role that um, literature played in, um, in, in condemning social conditions mm-hmm. and imagining alternative worlds um, and, and advocating for a more egalitarian society. Um, you know, I want readers to, to think about what might it really mean and look like to approach the work of canon formation and, and interpretation beyond, you know, our default model of authorial racial identity, you know, um, it's just, it's too, it's too narrow, it's too identitarian, it's too segregated, and it ends up reinforcing notions of racial authenticity and, and cultural ownership that gets us back to the problem of as, that I started talking about at the very beginning of our chat. Um, it gets us right back to that problem of only valuing African-American literature for its ability to, um, to represent Black racialized experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to valuing African-American literature as this broad, expansive project um, that has always, I think, I think African-American literature has always sought to move beyond the stereotypical ways that America has seen and continues to see Black people. Um, You know, there's a long tradition of of Black writers rejecting the established conventions of um, depicting Blackness Mm -hmm. um, and expectations of who and what 
should be the subject um, or focus of, of black writing. Um, So um, I, I want, I want people to leave the book um, impressed with how complex um, African-American writing is. Um, So that's my hope. Um, But to be honest with you, I'm, I'm grateful that um, I'm grateful that the book has had the reception that it has. I'm grateful that you found merit in it. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I really am. Um, It's a first book. Um, I just could not have imagined. I I thought, like I said, I'm still waiting to be canceled. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still waiting to be canceled on Twitter. (laughs) Nobody reads books anymore. So, (laughs) so they won't get that. That's true. That's true. Let me turn that around to you. Uh, you know, just as readers deeply impacted by books, uh, we read, uh, also as authors, you know, we're transformed by the process of writing and you've talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious where this book leaves you and where it points. And this is a chance if you want to, to, to talk about future projects, but also just how this book leaves you, how you walk away from the book. Yeah. This book was the most difficult thing I've done. And I've done some pretty difficult things in my life. Um, but it definitely changed me for the better. Um, it really forced me to um, to confront some of my own assumptions um, about blackness and African American literature, um, and it also it also kind of made me um, check my own um, kind of interpretive attachments. Um, you know, I recognized that my own views were were narrow and too canonical, right? And I have to say that a lot of this just comes from my graduate training at Northwestern, where the only black writers I studied in seminars were the ones that were canonical, were the ones that white people liked, like Harriet Jacobs and Charles Chestnut. Uh-huh. I I just found out about Andrea Lee. I mean, I think it's this and, and that's where I'm going with my next project. But it's just such, such a shame to me that I didn't meet her earlier on in my studies. And I think I didn't because she doesn't fit in to the traditional ways that we've defined African-American literature. Um, She exists Mm -hmm. outside of that. And so, um, you know, we've got to change the the structures. We've got to change our um, our systems of thought and our definitions to include a wider, more diverse group of um, of writers. Mm -hmm. Um, So. my next project, I I hope, will be a testament to that. Um, I I want to do something that you rarely see in in literary studies today. I think my press would do it because my press is kind of old school and and they still publish <laughs> these kinds of books. Um, but I want to do a single author study on the fiction of Andrea Lee. Um, I'm really fascinated by That's her fantastic. complicated subject position. Yeah, she's. Um, She's a black woman, um, the daughter of uh, a Baptist minister and a school teacher. She's a part of that post-soul generation. Um, went to private schools, summer camp. I mean, had a life that is like the complete opposite of my life as, as a black woman. Um, she, she identifies as an African-American, but she also claims um, uh, a heritage of racial mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is probably more more seen in um, the Caribbean 
than, you know, what you might see here in, in America, where I still feel that one dropism kind of dominates sure. discussions uh, about race. Um, but she also um, lives a very unconventional life for an African-American writer. Um, she lives abroad in Italy with her Italian husband and their two kids. And she writes about women like herself, um, women um, for whom money and travel and the international community um, offers them greater freedom, um, you know, mm -hmm. more mobility. Um, they get to kind of maximize their romantic and sexual options outside of the U.S. Um, I think she's a writer who um, implicitly understands that Blackness is capacious and that Black fiction can be about any and everything. Um, and I think it's I think it's time for us as scholars to embrace that, too. So I love single figure studies. So I I'll always do you? I do. do I, mean, you? I mean, all of my books are single figure studies, so it's a little self-serving, but uh, <laughs> um, and forthcoming stuff is uh, as, uh, projects are single figure. But I think that kind of depth, whether they're they're figures who have been really studied or you're sort of pulling somebody from the from the margins of, of our of our literary and cultural awareness. Either way, I think these single figure studies just offer so much depth. And uh, I can't wait to, to see that book. I often say at the end of these, when I ask this question, you know, like hurry up and write it so we can read I know. it. And, so we can read it and I talk know. about it. Um, but that's how I have, I have, I'll, I'll just say I have, um, I have a piece that kind of announces the book project coming out in, um, Russ Castronovo's forthcoming Oxford Handbook of 20th Century American Lit. Um, so I actually just did the proofs um, and it's it's on Andrea Lee. Fantastic. Let me link to that in the, yeah. the little uh, notes on the show for sure. So. Okay, great. great. Well, thanks so much for this conversation, Alyssa. This was, I love the book, as I said before, and um, I think it just gets more interesting as we talk about it. And I really appreciate you taking the time at the end of a long academic year to have this conversation about a book that you've rightly been able to uh, put behind you, award-winning book <laughs> put behind Thank you. you. Um, but I really appreciate the time and this is such a fantastic conversation. Thank you, John. Um, it's been great getting to know you and it's been just fabulous talking to you about these ideas. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you at a conference or- Those um, things may exist in the future. Please, at a talk. Please, please. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully I'll see you at a conference or a talk, even if it's only on Zoom. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Well, take care. It was good to talk. Thank you.